Hey, there you are. It's January 27, 2023, and this is the Room Now podcast. I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. The podcast is brought to you by RoomNow.live. It's our best and upcoming meeting, March 18, March 19, in Dallas, Texas. Fly into DFW or watch it from home. This is a great meeting. I work all year at it. Artie Cavanaugh is with the co-host. He's done tremendous things to make this a better meeting. People say this is unlike any other meeting they go to. Probably because the lectures are short, the discussions are plentiful, um, the break time is good. This is a fun meeting. Uh, and that's our objective. Great speakers, great education, great fun. A day and a half in Dallas or from home. I think you'll like it. The uh, early bird registration ends, I think, at the end of this month. So you got a few more days if you want to get it on the cheap. So let's get into this week's uh, abstracts and uh, studies uh, and news. You know, it's kind of like a week, week, meaning I can't see any blockbuster things happening this week. So I'm going to cherry pick here. And frankly, I'm going to be kind of snarky. So I'm going to change my name. My name is going to be Simon. My name is going to be um, Simon Brumatology. And um, that way, that's who you're going to blame for the things I'm about to say. And at the end, we're going to take some calls from you, the viewer. Let's start with a study um, that I like, um, maybe. It's about dry synovitis. Um, I don't know if you know about dry synovitis, but those in the pediatric rheumatology world do. When I was rotating as a fellow through the pediatric, and I did a lot of pediatric rheumatology with the rheumatology division um, led by Chester Fink and Lynn Pinero and Virginia Pasquale. You know, great people doing great things at the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. Loved going there, loved learning. And Chet Fink was a masterful teacher, um, except he did this one thing that drove me crazy. He talked about dry synovitis. So Chet was a big guy. He would stand at arm's length from the kid, you know, with two fingers raking over the MCPs or PIPs, closing his eyes, you know, turning his head a little bit. With a little squint, he'd say, I think there's dry synovitis here. And as a fellow, first and second year, I thought, I think he's nuts. How can you have synovitis and not feel it? and call it synovitis, you know? So this is sort of, to me, a myth that exists. Either you have it or you don't. Well, here's a study that actually looks at this. It must, I must say, it's a multi-center study to come up with 12 patients with dry synovitis. Um, and the average age of onset here was six years. Um, they all had polyarthritis, polyarthralgia, but no palpable swelling. Um, they all developed progressive um, limitation of motion and contractures. That was sort of shocking. Despite having normal SED rate, normal CRP, and being seronegative for RF and CCP. Imaging on, in these people did show um, bright signal indicative of synovitis and a tendency over time to develop osteochondral involvement. Again, this is probably a different, and, and they clearly say this is a different subset than polyarticular JIA, right? So, What's different about it? Well, I just told you. And so my many years of doubting my mentor, Chester Fink, on this one issue probably, again, proves how good he was at what he was doing. 
Um, I don't know that this exists in RA patients, but those of you who are doing lots and lots of ultrasound should be the ones to tell the rest of us whether it is so or not so. Um, a sub-analysis of the Scleroderma Lung Study 2, which was a head-to-head trial, a comparative trial, of mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide in uh, patients with scleroderma-associated ILD. Um, they did, a, you know, that we've talked about that many times. Many people feel this is a great study. Some people feel this is a flawed study um, in its design, and, and then hence its conclusions. The good news is they got a lot of patients, and they did a sub-analysis that showed having G, patient-reported GI reflux of a moderate degree or higher was independently associated with change in, in their ILD and more fibrotic changes over a two-year period. But none of this was associated with esophageal dilation or esophageal disease that they could, um, you know, otherwise identify. So these are patient-reported symptoms. Again, this is a study you probably shouldn't have done. So this falls under the don't do this. Why? A, it's a sub-analysis four years later, eight years later, I think, on an original study that wasn't designed to look at this. Second, your p-value fishing and now you're resorting to what patients say. Again, everybody has ILD and ILD progresses. So now you're looking for anything that was associated with that. Is that meaningful? I don't think so. So this is more about not the importance of reflux here. We know it's important. Um, does it predict lung disease? I don't think so. There's another study that kind of um, irks me. It's the PRED-SS study. And it's spelled like that, PRED-SS. It's a small trial of 35 patients, red flag, um, in early diffuse scleroderma, systemic sclerosis. And they treated 17 with prednisolone and 18 with uh, placebo. And they looked at three months outcomes and they showed that the results favored prednisone, but none of it was significant. So then what the heck are you talking about here? Why are you reporting this? They did say that there was less anxiety and less pain with prednisone. Again, um, you can't do large trials in early diffuse systemic cirrhosis, right? That's, so you get points for that, but the small numbers really limit you. The lack of a real control, I mean, well, they have a placebo control here, but again, I don't know what this really tells me. I'm not going to use steroids, um, and this study wouldn't even prove it if it did have p-values better. Um, so that's the story here. Don't use steroids in scleroderma. And, you know, if you do, you have a risk of, of, of renal crisis, inducing renal crisis. But there are some patients early on when the early edematous phase before they really get bound down skin that maybe giving high dose steroids could be important in lessening that and lessening the uh, um, ultimate amount of skin tightening. That's sort of folklore in rheumatology backed up by some data. Um, a study from India looked at 700 plus patients with lupus, um, and they were measuring plasma uh, vitamin D levels, 25 hydroxy vitamin D, uh, and they showed that um, the median values were uh, roughly 23, um, and that low values, less than 20, were seen in over 40 percent, and correlated with age and geography. We know that to be true. The, the certain geographies in uh, um, in India are less well health-wise and are underserved. And age is clearly a risk factor with vitamin D, but showed weak negative correlations with 
um, the Sleet I2K. What are you saying here? Really? Vitamin D levels correlate with disease activity in lupus? That's been looked at many, many times. Vitamin D, very important in lupus outcomes. Um, your lupus patients should have their vitamin D levels checked and have it treated. But treating lupus with vitamin D, um, everything I've looked at says no. It doesn't really work. And it's like anything else with vitamin D. We all are, you know, gun-ho about it, but show me a study where giving vitamin D gigantically changed the outcome. Now, recently I did hear Michelle Petrie talk about a study that actually did show some benefits, but I got to say there's a whole bunch that didn't show, so I'm still not a believer. Am I taking vitamin D? Yes. Am I measuring my vitamin Ds? No. So, yes, I'm a vitamin D curmudgeon, and I think that this was not a good study. Another study um, looked at... um, what happens and why patients in Korea, 439 RA patients who are starting on a biologic or DMARD, why they made those choices. And specifically, they looked at those who are starting for the first time a JAK inhibitor, TNF inhibitor, or a non-TNF biologic. And they showed that um, the choice of a JAK inhibitor was more likely associated with age, not having lung disease, having high disease activity, and prior tacrolimus. They use a lot of tacrolimus in Asia and Japan and Korea. We don't use so much of it so, uh, here in the United States. Um, and these are all significant correlations. But does this really help to inform your therapy? I don't know. Again, there's a lot of, you know, jacks are all the rage and there's a lot of use of that out there. I don't think this helps inform who should be getting jack inhibitors. We do know from a surveillance study that actually age is a risk factor for cardiovascular outcomes and cancer. Um, and there's enough discussion about that that we've had in the past. So I wouldn't have done that study either. I don't do this is what I'm saying. Um, do this. JAMA had a review of the treatment of TB, looking at the regimens. Uh, and I'm sure you probably know this, the old regimen of six or nine months of INH for patients who have latent TB, LTBI, that's a positive TB test, but uh, no signs of active disease and a negative chest X-ray. Um and the reason we have to treat latent TB is that there's a 5 to 10% risk of getting active TB. That goes up as you get older. That goes up if you're on a TNF inhibitor. It doesn't necessarily go up on other biologics. Yeah, you can find me a few cases and some small numbers. But honestly, compared to TNF inhibitors, it's small. The risk is really here with TNF inhibitors for TB and non-tuberculous uh, mycobacterial infections. Anyway, the treatment for LTBI, the preferred regimen is four months of oral rifampin. Um, they show it's better than INH, it's safer than INH, you get it done quicker, it's it's cost, It's very cost-effective. The second preferred regimen that was actually, this was published in the New England Journal, is three months of, of INH and rifapentin given a few times during the week. This study also very well tolerated, um, a high percentage of completers, less serious adverse events, less adverse events, and of course, um, associated with a lot of problems with completion and adverse events and lab abnormalities is daily INH for six months grade B evidence um, or nine months grade A evidence. This week we reported on the jackpot study. I don't know if you've heard us talk about jackpot in the past. It's a 17 registry, international registry analysis of patients who are going to cycle from one jack to another or switch their jack um, to 
a, another biologic DMARD. We've had a lot of messages from the from this jackpot study, and they're not always the same. So this study has some limitations in my mind. Again, it's open label. It's what the doctor wanted to do, what the patient wanted to do, and what they did in that region versus your region. But the bottom line that they showed of there was a 365 patients who cycled amongst their jacks and 1,600 who went from a, a jack to a biologic DMART. And the bottom line is if you fail your first jack, should you cycle or switch? They say cycle or swap. And the bottom line is that the cyclers and the switchers basically had the same outcomes. There was no different, and it doesn't really matter. What they did show was that if you um, uh, stop your first jack inhibitor for problems of adverse events and toxicities, that's more likely to happen the second time around. So it's a little bit like TNF switching, right, or cycling, or IL-6 cycling. It works. In my opinion, you can do one or two, but not nine of them meaning you continually lose response. So this is sort of supportive evidence for those of you who want to keep on using a jack or switch to jack, especially if you're in a country where you have four jacks available um, or five jacks available, not, such as not the case in the United States where we have three. Um, uh, interesting report in, um, uh, I think it was arthritis and rheumatism on variable pregnancy outcomes with bulimumab use in SLE. Um, this reports on uh, 319 bulimic exposed pregnancies with known outcomes. Uh, they drew their data from A, clinical trials, B, um, the bulimab um, pregnancy registry, BPR, and spontaneous reporting in the literature or to MedWatch. Um, Overall, out of the 319, there were 223 live births. That's not really a great number. Um, and they really report on two main outcomes, birth defects with bulimumab and also on pregnancy loss. Birth defects were all over the map. Um, again, if you have no control population and you can't, it shows you the difficulty of doing pregnancy studies and looking at these, these numbers. We don't have a control. The population control on birth defects in the normal population is 3 to 6%, right? So in their study, they showed in the clinical trials, it was 5.8%. In the post-marketing reports, it was 1.1%. Why the difference? Reporting bias? I don't know. But in the BPR, the, the bulimumab pregnancy registry, it was 22%. What? And the question is, does that reflect who gets into that study? More about that study, BPR, in a second. Um, when you look at pregnancy loss, it's also kind of a little bit all over the map, but the numbers are a little higher than what I would like to see. But in the RCTs, um, bulimia ex exposed um, was 40, uh, 32%, uh, and the placebo exposed was four, uh, 44% as far as uh, the incidence of pregnancy loss. And that's all pregnancy loss, most of it being um, before week 20. The same was seen or in, in the post-marketing reports where it was 31%. So, again, this reflects the problems uh, of this. In, in, but when you look at the pregnancy loss in the BPR, in the prospective cohort, it was only 2 out of 48 patients. And in those who um, uh, uh, looked at it retrospectively, as far as when they were enrolled in the BPR, 
it was 50%. So you go from 4% to 50%. This is a big problem. So there's another report that's out there in um, the, the Journal of Birth uh, Defect. It's not journal. It's Birth Defect Research. Um, this is actually a report that came out this last month also on this BPR um, where they were supposed to enroll uh, 500 plus patients to get the kind of data that they want. It turns out they stopped enrolling because they only had 55 patients. And the data that they got is kind of screwy, kind of worrisome. Two uh, pregnancy losses out of 53 pregnancies. Um, uh, and so that's kind of good. But 10 of the 53, or in another analysis, 10 of 45, had a major birth defect. So again, the recruitment didn't go well. Does this mean they only recruited patients who are going to have the most amount of problems or who were going to have, who they already had problems? Again, this is one of the problems. Again, I, I, pregnancy research is incredibly difficult. Um, the ACR 2020 reproductive guidelines on drug use say that rituximab, you can continue it, uh, the drug, until you conceive, and then you should um, probably stop it because there's not a lot n- enough known that you may continue it if um, if severe life-threatening disease is present that you would be giving the rituximab for. But these data, again, are too all over the place to say with any confidence what to do. I have used belimumab during pregnancy because I'm a firm believer that the problem is the mother's inflammation and state more so than the drug that the mother takes when it comes to the, the fetal outcome. So I felt that Again, uh, uh, in this case, uh, Blimimab was needed um, to maintain a healthy pregnancy. And in fact, the mother uh, delivers. So again, always be more concerned about the mother's disease activity than you are about what is known or unknown about the drugs. Let's go and look at um, uh, or listen to a few questions from um, listeners. Here's Dr. Eve Scopolitis. Hi, Jack. Eve Scopolitis from uh, Auctioner Rheumatology in New Orleans here. I'd like your take on this uh, fibromyalgia blood test that's been around for a few years. I think it's put out by the University of Illinois College of Medicine. I don't think I needed to diagnose my patients, but some of my patients insist on me getting it. What do you think about it? Thank you, Dr. Scopolitis. Always a great question when you send one in. Um, the test is called F, capital F, capital M, slash lowercase a, test for fibromyalgia. Um, I spent a half an hour researching this. No, I've never done it. No, I'm never going to do it now that I've read a little bit about it. This has been around since 2013 when it was presented at a national meeting. Um, this test um, has seldom been published. Um, it's a test that looks at chemokines and cytokines and supposed to actually help diagnose. Finally, there's a test for fibromyalgia. Um, do you really need a test to diagnose fibromyalgia? If you do, I would suggest um, quitting. I was going to say maybe do or redo the fellowship, but yeah, no, probably should quit because um, this is a clinical diagnosis. You know, all of our diagnoses are clinical, are clinical diagnoses. I don't need a lab test to diagnose anything. Yeah, you know, if I get a 60,000 CPK, 
or 200 aldolase. Yeah, it's going to be bad myositis and probably rhabdo. But then again, did I need the lab test or would I have not gleaned that by looking at the presentation of the patient? So, A, this test costs over $1,000. B, there's no real peer-reviewed research and it doesn't appear in any reputable journals. It doesn't have any... um, um, it doesn't have a pedigree of science behind it, is what I'll say. Patients are demanding it, and that's what Dr. Scopolitis is concerned about. What happens when your patient comes in and demands it? Well, you know, the patient's kind of the boss. They want to do it. They want to pay for it, or they want their insurance to pay for it. Go right ahead. Am I going to use it? Nope. Now, I'm not a big believer in don't order tests unless I know what I'm going to do with the results. But if the patient's pushing... You know, give them what they pay for. I'd, I'd rather satisfy the patient than try to have a um, toe-to-toe knockdown drag out on why I think this is a the goofiest of all tests ever invented. Yeah, I think I just said that. Remember, my name is um, Simon Brumatology. Here's another question from Howard Van Gelder. Hi, Dr. Kush. This is Dr. Van Gelder practicing out in Southern California. I had a question about patients who have asymptomatic CK elevations with a large macro CK component. Do you typically work these patients up or follow them serially for autoimmune conversion, or how do you approach your management? Thanks. Howard, I think I answered this again, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So um, I know you're sort of focusing on macro CK. I think its um, value here is incredibly limited. Um, CKemia does occur with JAK inhibitor use. Um, in the rheumatology world, there's no cases reported of a patient. And these sometimes go into two, three, four hundred, you know, maybe even higher. But there's no cases reported of actually frank myositis or muscle disease stemming from this. In the dermatology literature, I did find one case of rhabdo and not a lot of detail around that. So what do I do? I order a CK early on and using a JAK inhibitor and then at six months and if it's greater than 300, I might follow it, but I'm still not going to do anything about it until they get symptoms, and then I'll do an evaluation. Um, if you want to do isotyping and macro CK, go ahead and knock yourself out. I don't think it makes you any smarter, just as we said earlier. More tests doesn't necessarily help you in managing these patients. Um, so, and, and right now, I think that this is the consensus opinion from all the jack inhibitor mavens that I've been hanging out with uh, in the last few years. Uh, uh, look at the safety data on all the JAK inhibitors at ACR, and the CKEMIA issue comes up, but again, of no consequence. Our last question comes from Alan Epstein. Uh, Alan uh, wrote me and said, um, I saw a 68-year-old physician who has psoriatic arthritis and is taking galimumab. Um, he was diagnosed with melanoma in situ. Um, was there literature in the mid to late 2000s about recurrence of melanoma, uh, on, especially in patients taking a TNF inhibitor? More recent data questions these findings, I believe. Again, he's asking for my opinion, um, and I, I often talk about this. I often have been confronted with this. I think that what you need to know is that, um, you know, number one, RA patients get more of certain malignancies. They get more lung cancer. They get more... Um, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they actually get more uh, non-melanoma skin cancer. And there's always this little signal for melanoma, but it's rare, right? Um, 
And, and all of that risk for those three cancers is related to RA and into, in, related to inflammation. Is it changed by therapy? Again, a lot's written, very little known because the study designs are not very good. Specifically, this issue of melanoma was, uh, came up when um, a number of years ago, the British Biologics Registry published a report in Arthritis Care and Research in 2010. They showed, you know, when uh, in their registry, um, the incidence of getting a cancer was actually higher on a DMAR than on a TNF inhibitor. And then they, they looked at patients who had prior cancer and did they have recurrence of their prior cancer or uh, well, on a TNF inhibitor or DMARD. And again, it was um, still lower on the TNF inhibitor. But what about if they had a prior melanoma? Um, there were 17 cases with a prior melanoma who received a TNF inhibitor and an 18% recurrence for three cases. There were um, 10 cases that had a, pr a prior melanoma who received DMARDs and there were no recurrence. This made people nervous. Um, and But again, it's... A subset of a subset of a subset, and it's really low numbers, and there's obviously limited follow-up here. So um, two large studies. One looks at developing your first invasive melanoma. So again, um, Dr. Epstein's question is about melanoma in situ, which is the simplest, less than one millimeter epidermis only, no chance of recurrence, gets cut out with a, a, a big wedge resection, um, supposedly no chance of recurrence, or incredibly low. Um, and yeah, I would use a TNF inhibitor in that situation. Um, there's another study that comes um, in 2017 that looked at um, a, a few different registries. There were 11 registries in nine countries and looked at the risk of developing melan uh, first invasive melanoma on a number of, of different biologics, including TNF inhibitors. And the answer was no, not increased, not at all. And then lastly, there's a, a Swedish national study that looked at 15,000 new TNF starts uh, and compared that to 7,000 bio, other biologics and 46,000 conventional DMARDs. And basically they showed the risk of first invasive um, solid or hematologic malignancy was really the same across the board with a number of different drugs, uh, TNFs and non-TNFs. And first um, melanoma, same thing. So there was no increased risk of hematologic solid squamous cells or melanoma if you look at all the different all those three different categories of therapies. So my answer um, to uh, this question is um, I would use um, a TNF inhibitor in someone with melanoma in situ. Many of you would not. Hence, if confronted with a melanoma in situ, if you have other options, go right ahead. You know, you're fine. Um, but me, I'm going to use it because I'm not afraid of it. If it was a deeper lesion and, and indicative of, of uh, invasive disease or malignant melanoma, yeah, change to another agent. Because in fact, there's very there's a, this is still a point of contention with, between a lot of experts. Uh, and they're arguing based on really sort of skewed, poor data. So if you have you know, other options, great. If you don't, then you know, use the drug that works if you think it really works. Those are my takeaways. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Go to roomnow.live to register for our March 18 and 19 annual Room Now Live. Talk to you next week.